0: Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Kelly Fraden about her new book, Advanced Parenting, Advice for Helping Kids Through Diagnosis Differences and Mental Health Challenges. This conversation is for you if you are thinking about, currently in the midst of, or have a child who's experienced really anything on the spectrum of atypical. And when I say atypical, I don't mean that there's anything wrong with them. I'm talking about more like divergence from the norm. And this can mean a learning difference. This can mean a mental health challenge. This can mean a physical health diagnosis. We're also talking about siblings in the context of having a higher need sibling. I'm saying the higher need in quotes, but you can't see that. <laughs> and peers. If you enjoy this episode, I love getting reviews that tell me which episodes you like and five-star ratings. That's super helpful. And of course, if you have anything else to say, you can DM me. I don't get to all of them, but I get to a lot of them. And I can use those questions to answer on Instagram reels, on at Raising Good Humans podcast, or on my Substack newsletter, Dr. Eliza Pressman. dot and don't forget you can subscribe to my Apple Premium podcast. This month's finishing up the mindfulness for busy parents, and then we're moving on to next month's premium, all about sleep, sleep
1: challenges, and supporting good sleep. So. I was originally inspired to write Advanced Parenting because as a child, I had my own challenge with childhood cancer. And growing up, I saw the toll that my diagnosis took on the rest of my family, how it, my parents had so much additional worry and work and, and so much stress that they had to cope with. And I think it was because I was aware of that Sort of ripple effect of a child's diagnosis on the rest of the family. That when I became a pediatrician and I would have sometimes difficult conversations with parents where I would tell them that their child had a disability or a diagnosis that would require interventions and medications and a lot of care, you know, you would see that in those conversations, a parent can process maybe like a third to a half of all the information you share and they get this look on their face as they're leaving the office. Like, you know, you, now, it's, now it's kind of game time and the parent is kind of alone for how they, for the next steps of integrating all this new information about their child with the rest of their life and their family and their care team. And so I, I, didn't th- I don't think it's fair that a parent is alone in doing that important work and i just think there should be more resources available to support families in that work cuz doing that work well has such a huge impact on a child's well-being and a family's well-being
0: so let's talk about the parents what is something by the way that was such a cold response to you because that was uh, you do have a beautiful story that led you to do beautiful work and also <laughs> let's talk about the parents first who really let themselves stop caring about themselves because they have so much invested in taking care of their children, of course, but that just gets so amplified when you have complex cases. And I'm wondering, what are some of the key things that parents can know about their experience from the beginning of those first conversations about finding out that something's going on to being able to have the stamina to function and support as a parent and as a partner and in a family, what are some things that can, can help out realistically?
1: Yes. In some ways, you know, there's, there's no replacement for a parent making the decision to take care of themselves you know i can give all the advice in the world about how to how to try to hack your child's challenge to make it slightly easier to manage but at the end of the day there's still work there's still appointments and research and communicating with your children's teachers and babysitters and planning ahead for the future and and all of that does fall on the parent but what what is obvious to me after working with like hundreds of parents over the years is that we tend to undervalue this work. You know, if we recognize that being the leader or the quarterback of your child's care is an important job and that work has value, then we can start to say that work requires time and energy and space. And if you try to just like, cram it in at night when you're staying up later than you should doing the research. And when you're, you get the time to take care of your child from pulling what would have been your workout time or your time to connect with friends or your time to invest in, in your future as a person outside of your responsibilities as a parent, You know that, that comes at a cost. And sure, anybody can be a martyr and put their children first for a few days or a few weeks, but eventually you'll kind of run out of steam. And we know that having a well-rested, well-regulated parent is so important to a child's well-being. I mean, for children without challenges, right? We we are, have such an important job for establishing boundaries and helping teach our children to, to be the grown-up that we hope that they'll be. But when, when our children face challenges, we have even more responsibilities to carry. So we just have to take care of ourselves to be there for the longer haul.
0: So- how do parents know when to look for, and and I think we know that this is just, you know, it's like how much more you have to convince parents that their care for themselves is their care for their children, and particularly in this amplified setting. And I'm wondering for parents who are ready to take on understanding a challenge that they're faced with, or a new diagnosis, or any diagnosis, how do you help parents or how can you help parents think about when to accept a diagnosis, when to look for second opinions, when to explore alternative therapies? Do you have any, I mean, it's so hard because your particular, your book and your topic is, you know, it's not really suited to a quick listen on a podcast because everything is so deep and so there's so much to think about. But given that, and given that you were able to put it into a book, can you help parents who are just thinking through, how do I know? First, even taking it a step back, how do I know if something is wrong? And then if something is going on or there is a diagnosis of concern, how do I know when to go from curiosity and questioning and worrying to action.
1: Yes. It, it's interesting because I think when I've talked to people in my community about the book, a lot of times people say like, yeah, I'm lucky. I don't really have like a huge diagnosis I'm facing for my children. But this is exactly the group of people that, that I do think can benefit is the people who are worried about maybe is there something there or is there not something there? And that ends up being a really important decision to have a framework to think through. Yeah. So because it you know you again are like the one person who knows your child best and and we all have this intuition about our our children's well-being and often if you have a concern and you take it to a doctor who just provides maybe reassurance but it still is worrying you I would say it just full stop that you should continue to speak up and advocate until you really feel at peace with the answers you're getting. And I think it's important that parents hear that from a pediatrician, right, from a doctor, because sometimes it can be intimidating to speak up to like somebody who has a credential or when you're in the room with like an expert and the expert says something, you assume that that's kind of the final answer. but but it's okay to push back and to come back and to continue to ask questions and and ask for a more testing or a referral or or whatever you need to feel at peace with the with the diagnosis, and it's an act of advocacy for your child. So I do think it's important for parents to do that. It can have a big impact on a child's care.
0: What would you say to parents who are afraid to bother their physician?
1: you know i would remind parents that the physician is there to help them right so so you're not a bother if you're looking for resources for your child that's the whole point of the the doctor being there and the same goes you know for educators that that these people are all there to help you that said like sometimes it's hard to help by like a portal message or an email. And so often if you are looking for a really thorough response, it does warrant like a visit or an appointment to like do the topic justice.
0: A quick break so I can tell you a little bit about my sponsor, ZocDoc. Have you been stewing about a health problem that you have or just like Googling and group chatting over things that you're curious about, but not curious about in the way where you're going to go find the expert, make the appointment and show up to find out? There are thousands of medical professionals on ZocDoc that are there to help you. You listen like a friend, but they give you the expert care that you need. So instead of going down a social media rabbit hole to find the root cause of your symptoms or asking everybody that you've ever met, just go to ZocDoc. It's the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed take your insurance and are available when you need them and they treat almost every condition under the sun. It is so hard to find great care that actually takes your insurance that you can get an appointment with within a reasonable amount of time. So go to zocdoc.com/humans and download the Zocdoc app for free and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours, not 24 months. That's ZocDoc.com slash humans, dot com slash humans, ZocDoc.com slash humans. Download the ZocDoc app for free and then find and book a top rated doctor today. So a couple of scenarios that I just want to think about, and there's just such a range of, of things that come up with kids, but I'm thinking about in particular a scenario where there is a question about whether or not a child should have a developmental pediatrician see them and have a neuropsych evaluation. And there's a hesitancy because somehow having access to that is either going to create a diagnosis and put kids in a position of having to kind of be labeled in a way that they're, either they or their parents aren't comfortable with. Or it's like you don't want to test for something because you're afraid that somehow that impacts whether or not it exists. So it's a lot about coming to terms with things. But there's this other kind of, I don't know, trend that I that I've noticed with families, which is feeling like going and seeing a specialist is somehow reducing your child to having a disorder, that something's wrong with them. And in this case, I'm talking about things that are in the category of, let's call it neurodivergence. How can we help parents feel like everybody's on the same team, even though, of course, the language around it sucks, to be perfectly frank? I think I think most of us feel that way. It's just like outdated and unpleasant but it's a language that we need to use both you know for insurance purposes and for understand like a universal understanding of what anybody's talking about but it does sound awful for the most part like no one wants to label their child in a way that sounds like there's something wrong with them and so i've noticed that parents feel like well then if i don't go see if i if i don't engage in that way of having pediatric care then I'm not participating in this world of overdiagnosis and it's a real shame because I think both of those things can be true there can be overdiagnosis and there but then why why miss out on the opportunity to get to know what's going on with your child and I I've noticed that and I have a hard time helping families and this is not my role but it ends up being my role a lot is hearing some things and making suggestions for going to see someone who might better be able to unpack all of this and understand and support kids and families. And the, the, there's something about it for us, for some families that just feels like you're saying that there's something wrong with them and that you're participating in a system that is controversial to them.
1: Yes. Yes. This is something I deal with a lot as well, you know, and, and, and I guess I, I I would encourage parents to really think critically about why they might avoid getting an evaluation because, like you said, an evaluation is a way to get more information about your child. Sometimes we have barriers to doing those evaluations that maybe are more about us as parents. Like we don't we don't want to have to do this. We don't want our children to have a diagnosis or a label that might change their school placement, their friend group, their their whatever it is. And then we also worry about kind of like losing control I think of who hears about that label and who how that impacts our child's identity. But so so some of these some of these barriers to getting more information I don't think are are as real as they seem. Like it seems like a big a big con or big cost to have a label attached to your child, but you have to also remember that you own that label as the parent and the child and you can take from that whatever works for you, whether it's getting more services, getting a reimbursement for services, getting support from parents who are dealing with similar issues and, and participating in a community that might, might help you, or then, you know, saying potentially that, that the resources that label unlocks aren't helping you. And that maybe that evaluation reflected a moment in time that doesn't reflect your child's ongoing journey. And, and you have rights about how that label impacts your child's future. So, so I think that sometimes those reasons for avoiding an evaluation are not as valid as we give, as they seem in the moment. So I I often err on the side of encouraging people just to get more information. Although I will say, I think there's a lot, neuropsychs in particular can be very hard to access and expensive and a lot of time. And so, so when I can, I try to really tease into what the goal of it is. And if it is just for evaluating for dyslexia or ADHD, sometimes there are alternative ways to, you know, dig in deeper without uh, sacrificing the quality of the assessment. And that is a really good point. It's so
0: expensive. It's so hard to get access to. We have a real crisis and shortage. So that's a whole other part of this. I think you end up having to address so many things that are just like a heavy lift from a systemic perspective. So there's like what parents can do in the context of what we
1: have to offer. In society, Go yes, ahead. I, you know, I think that that one of the most important things about it is understanding that you're not alone. You're not the only parent who's dealing with these concerns and having these questions. And and sometimes I think because of the same issues we were just discussing about, we don't want to label our child. Sometimes we don't want to talk about the challenges or worries we have about our children's well-being. But when we start to talk about them, more you see that most kids have something that their parents are worried about regarding their, whether it's their academics or their social and emotional development or or whatever it is, that those those worries are part of the typical parenting experience. And, you know, that's why, you know, I wanted to talk about advanced parenting rather than like parents who are caregivers, because I think it, it's more inclusive to just understand that that parenting includes this kind of extra layer for most folks.
0: So when it comes to advanced parenting, what do you think can take a parent into this category? And by the way, what you said at the beginning, most of this holds true no matter what your circumstances are because parenting environment. I think for better, but sometimes this freaks people out, but it really is the most powerful environmental influence on our children. And that's something in our control, like literally nothing else is in our control except ourselves. So I sort of feel like it's a advanced parenting gives a lens of hope in the context of feeling pretty hopeless. What are some, some ways to understand advanced parenting and and what are the most important features
1: yeah so you know what I think is important to recognize is that our health literacy is not always there to support us in these moments. So, I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent in a in a visit with me, and you know it's clear that what we're talking about they don't know anyone with it. It never occurred to them as a possibility. Some of the the medical jargon is like totally new, and these are very smart parents who are like you know, they have graduate degrees. They're they're very successful people, and so I think it's important to give ourselves grace when we're parents, kind of venturing off the beaten path. That there is a learning curve, that that um, that it will get easier with time, but that you deserve a minute because there's an urgency and sort of a panic that many parents feel in the moment of like, okay, we've got to do this and this and this and this and this. And I I want to encourage parents instead to be like, okay, I need a minute to process this and learn more about this and have my questions answered and to potentially talk with some other people who can give me more information and more support so that I can make the best plan. Now, sometimes it might be like your child has appendicitis and they're willing to do surgery and you don't have the luxury of that. But for most diagnoses, yeah. you can at least like to- stop yeah. and be like, just like when you're talking to a child, you know, about sex or death or any of these challenging moments of parenting, often the most important step is to, you know, take that deep breath and and check on yourself as a parent first and like regulate yourself and be like, wow, this is overwhelming for me. But like I I know I can do this. And uh, I just need some time to, like, cope and digest and, and research and make a plan. But the, that sort of growth mindset that we try to teach our children, we don't always, like, embrace that in ourselves. But, but we should. So let's say you're first,
0: and it's so true, it's everything, that breath first and talking to sorting through how you feel about what's going on so that you can then show up for your kids. So when you are showing up for your kids and you're sharing with them information about what you've learned about them and their development, what are some ways that you help parents share this information? And maybe we can walk through it from a developmental perspective. So early childhood through adolescence.
1: Yes. I I talk about this a lot in the book because one thing I've observed over the years is that parents try to avoid talking to their kids until they have you know s- certainty and confidence in what they're going to say which is understandable but i think for a lot of children they know when something's going on well, even even 2-year-olds they're so observant they see you on the phone more they see you looking more stressed or 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 you know more tired and they know and so sometimes talking to them earlier in the process can make it less frightening for them to share and to also understand that it's often not one big conversation with your child where you go through everything but it's more like lots of little conversations that enhance their understanding so i think for 0 to 3 i would say or a 0 to 4 those children often you know they can't think very far ahead and they're very focused on on what's around them their friends their babysitters their routine and so I often encourage parents to anchor in that reality of those children that you don't want to tell them about a surgery in six months. Like that's that's not going to have significance to their life and they're not going to be able to understand it. And then they might just potentially worry about it longer or ask you about it longer. And so to think about when you talk to those children, concrete details about what they might see that's different about their routine or about the, the people around them. Like we have to go to the doctor's appointment and... This is what you can expect as much as possible to give those concrete details to them is helpful. I think the next sort of developmental stage, I'd say like maybe five to 10, you see a lot of more questions. You'll see those kids often sometimes will get stuck on something new and really focused on it a lot as they process it and understand it. They might kind of play through it and incorporate it into their play if they have an experience at the doctor or emergency room. and. That can be stressful for parents to see, but is often part of how the children like cope. And at this stage, I think it's important that parents um, feel comfortable saying when when they don't know the answer, that you don't have to know all the answers. They have questions that even the doctor might not know all the answers to, or if you don't know what to say, it's okay to be like, "I'm not sure how to say." Like, "Well, we can we can ask at our next appointment. We can research it together." But the goal of the conversation is to Make sure that the child has a sense of safety. Like we're in this together. We're going to figure it out together. We have a team and a sense a a sense of hope. Like you know your your teachers or your doctors. They're going to make a plan that's going to help us to to work through this together. And and we're going. It's going to take time, but we'll see that that plan helps you feel better or learn better or whatever it is. Then for the older kids, I, I think that it is even harder maybe than the five to 10-year-old group because what I worry about with the, the tweens and teens is that sometimes they're less transparent about what goes on in their minds. So they might be more likely to Google things or to worry about them, but not want to put the burden back on you as a parent. So they don't want to worry you by asking you questions that might upset you. So what I think is important to acknowledge in this group is that you're not the only source of, of information or support for your children. And it doesn't make you a lesser parent to say, like, I want to make sure I have a full team supporting my child. You know, what I mean is you might want to incorporate a coach or a school counselor or the best friend's parent where they spend a lot of time because these other members of your community, if you give them some communication and some background can be meaningful supports and important supports for your children as they kind of cope with this.
0: So when parents don't want to share with their children, what can you say? I mean, I think you already said it, but I really want to highlight it because it happens particularly, I think, with learning differences is a good example. You know, feeling like, well, I don't want them to think there's something wrong with them. And so instead, you're seeing phone calls, you're seeing doctor's appointments, you're seeing changes in the way the school is working for you. You might be medicated. There may be lots of things, and parents don't want to necessarily, I guess maybe it's so that they don't feel like they're making their kids feel less than – But can you talk a little bit about lifting the burden from kids when they find out that it turns out that they have a different way of being and that that's actually real, they're not imagining it?
1: Yes. You know, I I think it's important that parents reflect on, on why they might hesitate to share information with their child and what kind of message that sends, right? Because- Because I think, you know, as children pick up on when their parents are stressed, children are laser focused on when they are different than their friends. So even a preschooler who's having more trouble separating than the other kids might know and feel bad about it. And so while you might not want to give them the label of being a child who has anxiety, letting them know that they're, that they're, brain is working differently than other kids and they are having more trouble and you can help them with that, is actually an empowering thing that might give them a positive a positive impact on their self-esteem. That like, yes, this is hard harder for you than for other kids, but that's okay. We're all different and we all have things that are harder for us and we're going to make it better together. Because I think it's... It's even more important for older kids because we do want to establish that open, bi-directional communication where the kids feel comfortable letting us know you know, what they see and hear and what questions they have. But if, if the kids get a sense that this is a taboo topic or something that we're not supposed to talk about, it might get in the way of that. And so I, I do think that keeping that big picture long-term goal in mind can be really helpful. Okay, so now I wanna talk about two other aspects of this. One,
0: the siblings, and two, the peers. So, you know, I just learned this term. I've never heard of glass children. The other day, my daughter mentioned someone being a glass child. And I said, What are you, what, I'm sorry, what does that mean? And she said, You don't know what that means it means the child who doesn't have a diagnosis of some kind or a, a high need child in the household it's the one you see through Aww. so that you can focus on needs more and i was like oh my god <laughs> that is heartbreaking and also a really a very i mean i thought it was a really good way of of describing that and i was thinking in this in these contexts there are probably a lot of glass children that you're seeing I have no idea who coined that phrase, by the way. It could be like an Instagram meme that just my daughter grabbed onto, or it could be in a legitimate paper that I've never read. <laughs> but let's just say if neither of us had heard, have really used it or heard of it much, it's probably newer. <laughs> but I was thinking about how to help parents see all their children and also help their the siblings understand what's going on while still remaining as important in the household.
1: Yes. This this comes up all the time. And I do think it's such an important thing for parents to remember to see all of their children and to support them. I, I think there's a lot of guilt that comes up with this as well because parents want to be there for their children in all ways, but you may have very real demands on your time. Like when one child's hospitalized, it's hard to show up for the other one who's at home in the same way, certainly. And I think it's important to give ourselves a little bit of grace and to understand that the the child who is watching a sibling go through this is actually in a position to grow as a person, to develop more empathy. And when I was writing my book, I spoke to a lot of siblings as part of my research process. And even even like preteen kids talk about how they sort of develop a way of making friends where they say like, was this the kind of person I would trust to talk to about what my sibling is focused on? You know, this like compass of how they think about people that is just part of their understanding of like there are good people out there, and those are the ones that I want to gravitate towards. Like I don't really want to be friends with somebody I wouldn't talk to about my sibling. And, and so the potential for good, I hope, can release some of the guilt. but i and I think it's important that parents, again, remember that they're not the only resources available to support to support their children. So calling on your network, your grandparents, your you know sometimes when you're you have one child that is sick there there might be some things that are harder to delegate. The extra love and attention of, and support for your other children might be something where you can call in those extra people who say they want to be helpful and they can they can show up and be there maybe when you can't. And you know protecting the other child's childhood is also really important because you know a child who is a toddler is going to still have you know strong opinions and needs and tantrums and what we know is that parents who are focused on another child will often view those children as higher needs and more intense and when really they're just like a typical child that still has a lot of their own needs but we can have this tendency to want them to grow up faster But it's okay for them to have spaces where they still are just just a child on their own trajectory and not not being adultified Mm -hmm. in that way.
0: And now what about the friends, peers, helping your children explain their circumstances to their peers and helping peers and parents of those peers understand how to talk about those things? Because you often see parents avoiding certain kids or certain circumstances or, you know, even the parents of children who I'm going to call them the advanced parents, which is a weird thing to say, but I just want to keep in line with them. (laughs) But I'm thinking about how they can communicate with other people so that there isn't this sense of, you know, even on the part of the parents whose child may have a diagnosis of some kind that they're saying like, Oh, I don't want to burden other people or like reduce the joy of childhood for the other children. So we'll just, you know, to ourselves or the other parents are feeling like this is too much for younger children. And, and I think this is a tricky conversation in general because we're talking about such a, Enormous spectrum of possible conversations from things that are pretty much like you described, something where you don't even know if there's anything really that is worth checking out, but it kind of feels like maybe there's something all the way to when you have to be in a hospital regularly. But I wonder if there's a way to sort of still answer that and think about peers and peer parents.
1: Yes. You know, I think that that many times parents can be really important advocates for their children when they speak up about what they need, if it's related to something like food allergies or something like neurodiversity, which might impact the way a child acts in a social situation, you know, if they need help in the classroom from a paraprofessional or something like that, that often sharing information with the peers, either going through, you know, the teachers or the school nurse or, or any route that might feel right to your school community, I think can be a gift to your child. Um, And I think, again, that's most important when the safety or the participation of your child might be impacted. You know, when I had cancer when I was little, for example, I didn't have any hair and the nurses came down from the hospital Basically, to tell to tell the other kids that like it wasn't contagious and that they could still like play with me and they shouldn't be worried and like all this stuff, and it was very helpful because you know they had been through it enough to like imagine things that other parents might not have imagined kids would like invent stories about how you know if you mm-hmm. want to keep your hair, don't go be friends with her or whatever so. That's important. But then on the other spectrum, for kids who are older or have maybe an invisible diagnosis where their peers maybe don't need to know, parents often have to think hard about about what they share and try to respect their child's preferences and privacy. And so often in that age group, I try to facilitate a diagnosis between the parent and the child about like, who who do you think should know who do you want to tell and and sometimes you know sometimes the kids don't want to tell anybody that they have a new diagnosis of diabetes or asthma and sometimes they do want to tell people and i think it's important that the parent and child be on the same page and that we give the child a sense of control because it's their body and their their story and so when we can safely allow a child to to choose, I think it's important to empower them to do so.